You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you today. Uh, Mark 13 is where we're going to be. So if you don't have a Bible, it would really serve you to have one out and open on your lap. And you can grab one underneath every three or four seats. You should be able to find one. So if you need one this morning, feel free to take that one. And if you don't have a good Bible at your house, that's the version we use here. It would be our gift to you. So Mark 13 is where we're going to be. Now, last week we covered the majority of the chapter. And uh, the first thing I said last week was this. That although all scripture is equally true, not all scripture is equally clear. And Mark 13, and you might have kind of walked into some of this last week if you were here, is a poster child for that statement. That uh, all scripture is equally true, we want to affirm that, but not all scripture is equally clear and easy to understand. And Mark 13 is just one of those where there is a lot of takes on it, there's been a lot of ink spilled um, over it. And last week I tried to make the case that I think that that verses 5 through 31 are all referring to events that happened uh, between the death of Jesus and the destruction of the temple in roughly AD 70. So, uh, you know, we kind of worked through that last week, and, and let me just say this kind of in summary of all of that. That, uh, you know, I think there's probably like three different opinions that people could have had last week. One was, you know what, that, that kind of makes sense. I, 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 maybe I can see that. The second is, Rodney, we love you, but you're crazy. And, uh, and the third is, people care about that stuff, you know. And so uh, and regardless of where you are, I just want to encourage you to hold, like this is a chapter in particular, that first you know, two-thirds of it, that uh, I want you to have an opinion. I want you to do the hard work of learning and jumping into the middle of that. But I think it's one of those, I want to give you this caution. I think you should hold your opinions humbly on that one and graciously um, when it comes to, to in particular, uh, Mark 13. So, but this part of Mark 13 is much more clear. Now, it is about to walk us into the big theological category called eschatology. So it's like the study of future things, um, end times, that whole big category of, of things. This passage walks us into that. Now, it was interesting to me. I spent the first eight years of my ministry life, or really 10 years of my ministry life, around teenagers. And anytime we would ever have a moment where I'm you know, with a group of teenagers and I would ask the question, what do you think would be good and applicable and, and helpful um, to teach through? What parts of the Bible, what issues, those sort of things. They would always say eschatology slash revelation. That was always like at the top of the go teach this one thing. And so it definitely put on my radar that people are interested in these things. And in particular, they're interested when you wrap a good story behind it, a.k.a. the Left Behind series. So uh, that was a book of, or a, a series of 16 books that came out, I think, between 1995 and like 2007. Seven of those book hit, uh, books hit the New York Times bestseller list, number one on the list. At one point, four of, of, that, of the books in that series, four of those books held the first four places on the New York Times bestseller list at the same time. Like 65 million copies of these things sold. So that will tell you that there is like an interest and a desire for these sorts of things. But I think it's worth saying this and maybe putting this caution out when it comes to this. I think a lot of our interest around it and a lot of, you know, the reasons why people like reading it aren't the best and aren't like what the Bible would hold as the forefront of what eschatology and the study of future things are meant to do. So let me just kind of cut straight to the chase, and this is what this passage shows us so well this morning, 
that when we talk about future things, every time Jesus talks about future events, end times issues, those future things are always meant to impact your everyday life right now. Now let me just say that one more time. I want you to know this. Eschatology, the study and thinking about future things, is meant to have a drastic and lasting and radical impact on your everyday life in the present. Future things should affect like now present things. And this is what this passage is going to show us really clearly. So I want to kind of break it up into three big ideas that this passage is showing us. And I'm going to spend the most time on the third one. So three big ideas. Here's the first big idea that we're learning in this passage in Mark 13, 32 through the end of the chapter, verse 37. Here is thing number one that we need to see out of this passage. We need to get, like we need to allow this to seep deep into our bones. Number one, that Jesus is coming back. That day is coming. History is linear and it is approaching that day. And you see it in verse 32. It starts like this. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So that day and, and that but, that contrast word at the beginning of verse 32 is signaling a whole shift in what we're talking about. So now we are dealing with a different event and we are specifically talking about the return of Jesus. That day, that hour is talking about that moment when Jesus is going to return, the second coming of Christ. Now, the Bible talks about this all throughout, like the New Testament, really all throughout the Bible, but in particular the New Testament. It is laced with talk about this. It is all throughout the New Testament, this idea that there is going to be this day. History is linear. There will be a day when the Father looks over to the Son and says, today's it. And the Son splits the sky and he comes back for his bride, the church. Now, Revelation 19, I think, gives an interesting picture of what this is going to look like. In Revelation 19, it's got Jesus on his white horse, a big tattoo down his right leg, right? Says, Lord of lords and King of kings. His eyes are like flaming fire. Out of his mouth is a sword of justice to to judge the nations. It is that sort of a picture. So I think it's important for us to see accurately what that second coming is going to look like when Jesus returns. It is not going to look like his first coming. His first coming looked like this, a manger, humility, wrapped in swaddling you know, clothes, allowing his own, very own creation that he created, allowing that creation to strip him naked, nail him to a tree where he bore God's justice for our sin. But the second coming is not going to be like that. He's not going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes. He's going to be wrapped in a royal robe on his white horse, not bearing God's justice for our sin, but bringing God's justice for sin. So in the second coming, Jesus is going to commend all of those who have received him and who have trusted him, but he is going to condemn all of those who have not, who have rejected him. So the the stakes could not be higher with the second coming of Jesus. And the Bible consistently talks about this. It is a huge, percentage-wise, it is a huge amount of the Bible that talks about and is building expectation and hope for the second coming of Jesus. So in the, in the New Testament alone, there's over 300 references to it. In the New Testament alone, that is a lot. And all of those are meant to impact your daily life, like your present life. All of this talk about the future in the New Testament is meant to... to to be brought to bear on how you're living right now. Now, I want to take a quick aside here and address what I think is probably in the room, just an objection that people might have, especially if you're in the room and you're investigating Jesus. You're trying to figure out, are these people around here crazy or not? 
Well, there's a good chance we are. But I think an, 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 object, an objection that you could very well carry into this, just listening to this this morning, would be something along these lines. So you're really telling me that like, y'all believe in like eternity, like heaven, hell, new heavens, new earth, that we're going to live forever. Like y'all really believe in those things? And I want to just take a moment to address that, that objection. And, and the quick answer is yes, we really do believe in that. And, and like we've got this deep longing in our heart for that. And, and I want to encourage you to think about this in your own heart. I think if you'll take enough time to look inside of your own soul, you'll find you have a deep longing for something really similar. I want you to listen to how C.S. Lewis um, encourages us to think about this. Here's how he writes about it. He says, Most of us find it very difficult to want heaven at all, except insofar as heaven means meeting again our friends who have died. And he says, one reason for this difficulty on why we don't have like a lot of expectation, why it would be really natural to think, I mean, y'all believe in that. Why would y'all believe in that? He says, one reason for this difficulty is that when the real want for heaven is present in us, we do not recognize it. So, So even when it's in us, that deep longing is in us, we don't recognize it, he says. He says, most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to us, like to satisfy that deep longing, but they never quite keep their promise. So I want you to take a second. If you're kind of in that camp of like, man, I don't know about that eternal life stuff, heaven and hell, like we live forever, Jesus coming back thing. I don't know about that. I want to just encourage you to think about that for a second, to, to take a good long look at your own heart and see if you can't see that longing for that in your own heart. I mean, maybe you could think about it this way. Have you ever had that moment where all this anticipation is being built up for something? Now, that's something for you could have been, maybe it was a new house that you were going to buy. Maybe it was this car. Maybe it was marriage for you. Maybe it was vacation. Maybe it was, you know, the, the, the idea of kids in your life. But you just had that moment where all this anticipation was building that, man, if I can just get that, then that deep ache in my soul will be satisfied. And then you get there and you get really disappointed because you wake up the next morning and you realize Man, I kind of feel now about like I did before. That, that ache in me was just not satisfied. That deep itch in me was not scratched. And what he's saying here is that is the longing for heaven. That that moment where you've got all this anticipation that surely that's going to be it. It's gonna, this is going to be the thing that satisfies that deep ache of my heart. And you get there and it just can't quite give you what your heart's wanting. He's saying there's a reason for that. It's because you have been hardwired with a deep longing for forever. You've been hardwired with this deep longing that nothing in this world can satisfy. You've been hardwired with this deep longing, namely for God and for what God alone can give you. I love how he goes on to say it. He goes on to say, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So when you get to that point where you're like, man, surely this is going to be the thing that scratches that deep itch and you get there and are disappointed yet again, know that that is all there to show you that nothing in this world can satisfy because the thing is you were made for another world. 
You were actually made for the new heavens and the new earth. You were actually made for God and life forever with God. So I just want to encourage you, if you're in that camp of like, man, I don't know about that. I just want you to take a look at your own longings and desires and let those things out. Let let them take you where they're meant to take you, namely to God. Okay, so that's the first thing we're seeing here, is that Jesus is coming back. There will be a day when he splits the sky wide open and he comes back for his bride, the church. Here's the second thing we see in this passage, is we don't know when that's going to happen. So we know he's coming back, but we don't know when he's coming back. This is verse 32 again. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Talking about himself, he's saying, I don't even know, but only the Father. So this is one of those places in the Bible where it is crystal clear, crystal clear, that we do not know the day or the hour when Jesus is coming back. Now, when I read a passage like this, it it just, it, it... it makes me really amazed at the consistent stream of people who want to get into the prediction business. I mean, isn't that crazy? I mean, he's saying, no one knows. You don't know. And it just seems crazy. And the next thought you would think, May 12th, 2011, it's happening. That just seems crazy, doesn't it? Like, I like how one pastor put it. He said, at the end of the day, this is our approach to the end times, like the when question. We're on the welcoming committee, not the planning committee, right? Like we want to be in the side and in the camp of like, we don't know when, but we're ready. Not the side that's saying on this day, but when you see the, we're not on that side of the fence. We're on the welcoming committee side of this thing, right? Now, you know, taking this one step further, there's this little part in here that that gives some people a really hard time because Jesus is looking at this and he's saying, listen, I don't even know the day or hour. And some people have that thought of, Man, if he's God, how could he not know? You know, so that can really get people in a tizzy really quickly. And I, I want to just try to briefly set you at ease with that. I think that passage is really just an expression of his humanity. That when he strapped on human flesh and became a man, that he let go of some of the privileges of being God, right? So in that moment, when he strapped on human flesh, he was not everywhere at all times. Like an attribute that we would say about God. And at the same t- way, in some ways, it limited his ability to know all things when he strapped on human flesh. And so this is just an expression of Jesus' humanity. But I want to come back to the point here. The point that I'm trying to drive at in this is to say that we don't know when Jesus is coming back. The Bible is clear on that. And you even see it in the various um, images that the Bible uses to describe the second coming. So let me just give you a couple of these. One image that the Bible uses is this imagery of a thief in the night. That's what it's going to be like. Now, I don't know if you have ever been to thievery school, but if you have... You would, you would know this about, like, this is like, first thing you've got to learn if you want to be a good thief, is you don't leave a note on the door, like, the day before of when you're going to come. You don't do that, do you? Like, if you want to actually steal something from a person's house, your number one objective is to do that in a way where they wouldn't know about it where they don't have like their defensive setup, where they're not on guard, where they're not awake, you're going to do that in a, in a moment where they don't expect it. That's like number one idea if you want to be a good thief. Now just transfer that over to the imagery of the second coming. He's saying that is what the second coming is going to be like. It's going to be unannounced like that. It's going to catch people by surprise like that. And in Matthew 24 in the parallel account, he instantly goes into talking about the story of Noah. 
So, so go all the way back to Genesis. This is the story of Noah where God looks at Noah and says, I want you to build an ark because there's going to be a flood of my judgment that's going to sweep people away. And what were the people around Noah doing? They were mocking Noah. And at the end of the day, they, they were doing like normal things that human beings do. They're eating together. They're drinking together. They're having a family. They're doing all of these things, not expecting that the flood of God's wrath was going to sweep them away in an instant. And they all got caught unexpected. That's the image here. It's going to be unexpected. It's going to be like a thief in the night. Another image uh, that Luke uses in Luke 21, another parallel account of this same passage. In Luke 21, he uses the image of a trap. Now think about what makes a trap a good trap. There's something about the hiddenness of a trap that makes it good, right? So if, if you're walking into a room and there's a trap in the room and you're like, you walk in the door and you instantly see, oh, there's a trap you're probably not going to get caught in. It's not a good trap. So there's something about the hiddenness of it, like the surprise of it, like it's unexpected, that a trap is conveying. And in Luke 21, he's making the point, that's what it's going to feel like to some people. It's going to feel like you just walked into a room, you just are living another day, and then all of a sudden it's going to spring out unexpectedly. It's going to catch you off guard and by surprise. And then you get to this passage, and he uses this, this imagery of the parable where a master um, has left his servants in the house, and, and the master's warning them, I'm going to come back, but you don't know when I'm going to come back. You don't know if it's going to be at midnight. You don't know if it's going to be in the morning when the rooster crows, at breakfast, at lunch. You don't know when it's going to be. In other words, it's going to be unexpected. That's the point here. We know Jesus is coming back, but in equally firm ways, we no, have no idea when that's going to happen. Now, last week, I summarized what we're close-handed about in terms of eschatology, end times things. And here is how I summarize the things that we're close-handed about. And we're close-handed about these things because I think the Bible is very clear about these two things. Here's the things we're close-handed about. The Bible's clear about them, so we're really firm on these things. Number one, Jesus is coming back. That's in a close hand. There's going to be a day where Jesus returns. Here's the second thing in a close hand. We don't know when that's going to be. Have no idea. So that's in a closed hand. So you're never going to have a moment where you're going to hear me make a prediction. Never going to happen. Not, not, not going there. So those are the two things in the closed hand. Now here's what we're going to see in this passage. When we get these two things in a closed hand, and when these two things are seeping into our hearts, like deep into our souls, Jesus is coming back, and we don't know when he's coming back, that should produce a certain way of living. That should do things to our everyday life. These two things about the, the, the future, he's coming back, we don't know when, should have a drastic effect on our everyday life. And here's the effect it should have. In light of those two things, he's coming back, we don't know when, it's the therefore. So in light of that, stay awake. Stay awake. Be, be ready for that. Now this is what you see in verses 33 and on. Mark 13, starting in verse 33. Let me read this um, one more time to you here. And I want you to notice the repeating idea in it. So th this is one of those passages where it's really clear to see the main thing Jesus wants us to know. So look at the thing that repeats over and over the phrase. Verse 33. Here's the first repetition of it. Be on guard. Be, be on guard. That's the first thing he says. In light of this, Jesus is coming back. We don't know when. Be on guard. Here's the second time he says it. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. 
It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper, here's the third time, to stay awake. Verse 35, therefore, in light of these two beliefs, Jesus is coming back, we don't know when, in light of that, here's the fourth time, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. Verse 36, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Verse 37, and when I say to you, I say to all. And what I say to you, I say to all. Here's the fifth time he says the same idea. Stay awake. Okay, are we all seeing the point of the passage? In light of these two close-handed things, Jesus is gonna come back, we don't know when. The point is those two future things should have this effect on our everyday life, that we are living awake that we are on guard, that we are ready, should have that effect on us. Five times in four verses, he is clarifying, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to live. In light of these things, now this, stay awake. So I want to spend the rest of our time kind of prying into this idea of staying awake. And I want to answer three questions about it. Here's the first one. What does it mean to stay awake? What what does that mean? So just think about the, the image that he just used here. So you've got a man who is going away on a journey. That man is the picture of Jesus here. He's, he's left his servants at the house. And he's told his servants, you need to stay alert and you need to stay ready. Why? Because there's going to be a time when I come back. So let's just play this out. What would it mean to stay awake? I think th- this is how I would put some definition around this. Living awake or staying awake means that we are living our everyday lives in such a way that we're ready to meet Jesus face to face. That we are living our everyday lives in such a way where we're ready. Like it's not going to be a surprise to us that we're ready to stand directly before Jesus face to face. That we're living like that. Prepared like that. Now now let me just build like the image here. I just want you to imagine that let's just say today at 2 o'clock. You either die or Jesus comes back. Today, 2 o'clock, it goes down. And you find yourself at 2.01 directly before Jesus. Living awake means that we are ready right now for that. That we are prepared for that. Now now think about what's happening in that moment. When we die or when Jesus comes back, here's the thing about that. There are no second chances. There isn't like a mulligan at that point. There isn't like a do-over at that point. Like all the things that you've done are done. There's no time to go talk to an unbelieving neighbor again. There's, there's no time to express your, you know, your need for forgiveness to that person. There's no time to repent of bitterness. There's no time to do any of those things post you die, Jesus comes back. All of those things are done. And he's saying now in light of that, I want you to think about that moment you're standing before Jesus. Are you ready for that? Living awake and being on guard. Being spiritually alert means that you are living in such a way where if at two o'clock that goes down, you are ready. Business is finished. Like the things that need to be done are done. That you're ready for that moment. Isn't it interesting in this passage that when Jesus leaves the, the servants and the doorkeeper at the house, he doesn't give 15 directions, he gives one. Stay awake. Like if, you, if you're staying awake to these things, you're going to be alert to all the things that need to be done in the house. You're going to be ready when I return. So stay awake. This is the number one thing. He's looking at his servant saying, 
in light of my return and you not knowing when, here is what you've got to be thinking of. Stay awake. Be on guard. Make yourself ready in your everyday life, how you're living your everyday life, that you are ready to meet me face to face. Okay, this is what it means to stay awake, is that you're living your everyday life in such a way that you're ready for that moment. Now, here's the th- second question I want to try to answer. What are signs of sleepiness? What are signs of spiritual sleepiness in our life? Now, you would think just by reading this passage, maybe on the surface, that, okay, so Jesus gives clear directions. It it sounds really simple. He's leaving for a while. He's going to come back. We don't know when. So stay awake. Just like figure it out and stay awake, right? But if you have lived any time as a Christian, you know that staying awake is not an easy thing. You know that our three enemies of Satan, the flesh in us, right, That, that old nature in us, um, that's still there, that, that Satan, the, the flesh, and the world are all conspiring to shove Tylenol PM into our heart. You know that's true if you've tried for any length of time to live the Christian life. So I want you to have a moment, you know, this morning where you can just evaluate, is my, like, am I spiritually asleep? Like, has just a slumber and a fog kind of just clouded my life? Is that where I am right now, or am I spiritually awake? So let me give you some signs of sleepiness. Here's the first one. And we could talk about this for a long time, but let me just give you um, five really briefly. Number one, sign of sleepiness. Number one is an apathy toward Jesus. Just an apathy toward him. So, you know, like when you think about the affections of your heart, you just don't have real deep affections for God. Like your, your affections for Jesus have just cooled. There's no, there's no deep and abiding and flourishing desires for God in your soul. A, a bunch of lesser things have just kind of overtaken that spot. So when you think about the things that like really get you excited in life, it's everything but God really gets you excited. Like everything but God really gets your heart moving. And if that's where you are, that is a sign of spiritual like sleepiness. That there is a fog that has settled over your heart. That the eyelids of your heart have begun to close. What it means to be spiritually awake is that there's like deep and abiding and flourishing affections for God. That you have got this deep river of desires that is flowing toward God. That's what it means and looks like to be spiritually awake. Just ask yourself the question. If I'm looking at spiritual sleepiness and Jesus is you know, command here to stay awake, if I'm evaluating that in terms of my desires for God, where am I on that? Are there like deep affections? Like I, I always think about like the easiest way to define a Christian, I think is Psalms 42.1. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after God. Is that happening? Is that, is that happening? Now I love how John Piper addresses this. Look at this on the screen. Author and pastor, he says it this way. Do you have a hunger for God? If we don't feel strong desires for the manifestations of the glory of God, if we don't have like a deep, abiding, flourishing affections for God, he says this, it is not because we have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's not because we have come to God and and really tried it and really been satisfied, but just, you know, it's just not doing it for me. He's saying that's not the, the issue. He says, it is because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great. And then here's like the overstatement of the century. God didn't, our understatement of the century. God did not create you for this. Just know that. 
God did not create your heart to be so stuffed full of like things, lesser things, that you have no room for God in your life. He didn't create you for that. He created you with this deep longing to have the bottom places of your soul satisfied. And the only place that will ever happen in any of our lives is in Jesus. It's the only place. It's the only place that has the capacity to satisfy the deepest affections of your heart. Now, let me just bring the urgency to this. If, if this morning you're like, you know, on like a one to 10 scale, like deep desire for Jesus over here, that would be not, not like a number 10. On a number one over here, it's like, man, I haven't thought about Jesus in the last like month. If, if you're like somewhere in the middle of that scale, if you're like, man, I'm not like a nine, 10, I, I just don't have deep desires this morning. That is the most important thing in your life to address today. There is nothing more important in your life to address. There is nothing more urgent for you to address. There is nothing more serious and important like right now, this morning, for you to be crying out to God, pleading for God to give you those desires. Nothing would be more important than that in your life. So apathy toward God, that's sign number one of sleepiness. Here's sign number two, is apathy towards sin. Apathy towards sin. So when we become spiritually sleepy, Sin becomes very tolerable in our life. Like we are very willing to coexist with sin, not really declaring war on it and like dealing seriously with it. We're totally good with just allowing it to kind of walk beside us in our life. And maybe you can think about it this way. When we are spiritually sleepy, sin for us does not look like the apex predator that the Bible would describe it as. Like the Bible would describe it when we're wide awake and we're seeing it like this as an apex predator. Like it's like a lion that wants to kill you. This is Genesis 4 when, when God is talking to Cain. He says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its, its desire is for you. Like it wants to devour you. It wants to eat you. It wants to totally destroy your soul. When we're wide awake, that's how we see sin. But when we're spiritually sleepy, we're totally good with just allowing sin to kind of coexist. We're totally willing to justify our sin, keep a little bit of secret sin in our life to play with every now, you know, every now and then. Like rather than viewing sin as an apex predator, when we're spiritually sleepy, it becomes kind of like a lap dog in our life. Like a little leash will control that thing just fine. That's all the effect of being spiritually sleepy. There's no sort of aggression towards sin in our life. No sort of willingness to deal in drastic measures to put sin to death in our life. Just ask yourself the question, how are you dealing with sin? Is it like this radical, I will do whatever it takes to cut this out of my life, to put this thing to death? Or are you totally willing just to kind of hands off, passive, we'll just kind of all go at our own pace. Whenever it happens, it happens. Is that your approach to it? That's the effect of being spiritually sleepy, if so. When I think about this idea of putting sin to death and the urgency and the necessity of that, it always takes me back to an old Puritan pastor. His name was John Owen. I think he wrote some of the best stuff on the idea of putting sin to death and growing in Jesus in obedience. Um, I think it's some of the best stuff that's been written in the history of the church thus far. And I want, you to, I want to read one paragraph that he wrote in here. This will be on the screen for you. Listen to how he talks about this. This is what being awake to sin looks like. Here's how he describes it. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now, Selah, think about that for a second. Either you're killing sin or that, that right now that sin is killing you. Those are the only two options with sin. He goes on to say this. He that stands still and allows his enemies, namely sin in this moment, 
allows his enemies, sin, to double blows upon him without resistance will undoubtedly be conquered in the issue. If sin be subtle, which it is, if sin be subtle and watchful and strong and always at work in the business of killing our souls. Now just think about that. That is what sin is doing. It is about the business of killing our souls. So he says, if sin be subtle, watchful, strong, and always at the, bus- or always at the work in the business of killing our souls, and we, on the other hand, are slothful, negligent, foolish in proceeding to the ruin thereof, of, of this sin. He says, can we expect a comfortable outcome? Like, in other words, if sin is trying to kill us and we're willing to just kind of make peace with it, can we really expect this to go well? Rhetorical question, the answer is no, we can't. He goes on to say this, there is not a day but that sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed upon, and it will be so while we live in this world. Let no man think to kill sin with few easy or gentle strokes. It doesn't happen that way. Gentle strokes never works. Politeness never works with sin. I love what he goes on to say. He says, this is how you kill sin. You put your hands around the throat of sin and you keep squeezing until there is no life left in it. That is how you kill sin. That's what it looks like to be wide awake is for us to have that sort of mentality with all known sin in our life. So just ask yourself the question, is that how I'm living? I mean, am I awake spiritually like this? Here's the third sign of of spiritual sleepiness, a preoccupation with the things of this world. So there's just a preoccupation with lesser things. And listen, I I don't want to like put this in the category of like, it's not that these things are bad. It's not that a house is bad. It's not that possessions are bad. It's not that family is bad. It's not that jobs are bad. It's not that those, all those things are good. But when there is a preoccupation with those things, like if our hearts are consumed with those things and not the things of God, it leads to spiritual sleepiness. Like, and this is exactly what Jesus gets at. If you remember back um, several chapters ago in Mark 4, when Jesus told the parable of the soils. Do you remember that? As the parable goes, um, it's something like this. That there is a sower. The sower is represented as Jesus. And he is sowing seed, representative of like the word of God, the gospel. And then that seed falls among various soils. And the soils would be representative of our hearts and our response to the seed of the gospel. And he says there's several different soil that that the gospel seed falls into. There's like the path where Satan comes and instantly snatches that out. There's the rock where it looks great. It sprouts up. It looks great for a moment. But then in persecution and suffering, that, that seed and that little plant dies and withers. But then he says there's also this, this soil of the thorns. And here's his description of what the thorns are. When the seed is thrown into the, the soil of the thorns, that this human heart that has all of these thistles and briars and competing things in it, here's what he says about it. Mark four nineteen. To describe that soil, this thorny soil, he says, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it's and it proves unfruitful. And I just want to take just a moment here, just to have a pastoral moment. And this is for me. By the way, all of these signs are me too. We're all in this together. I, and one of the things I'm praying is that for every one of our hearts that God would use this morning to arouse us into like awakeness. 
But when I think about the parable of the sower, and in particular the third soil, the thorns, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and just the desires for just things. It's not that they're bad things, they're just just not God things, you know? When I think about that passage in particular, and that soil in particular, I am absolutely convinced that that is the predominant soil in our culture. That we are a third soil culture. And it would lead me to say this in this room. That when I think about um, my job as a pastor of trying to ready all of our hearts to meet Jesus, my number one concern for most of us in the room is not you in some high-handed sin. Like where you just totally fall off the bandwagon, jump off the cliff, and it's just like disastrous sin. The thing that I worry most about for the majority of us in the room is just a steady preoccupation with things to the point where God becomes just another one of the many things that we kind of like in our life. We just get lured away and the desire for God gets choked out because we just have so many competing desires. There's so many other competing things. The deceitfulness of riches, the cares of this world, where it just chokes out a spiritual awakeness. So I just want you to consider that. Is your heart preoccupied with all of these temporal things that at the end of the day, listen, are not going to matter eternally? Or is your heart preoccupied with eternal things that will matter for all of eternity? And when we're spiritually asleep, we've got this preoccupation toward the, the temporal. When we're spiritually alive and awake, we've got this preoccupation with the eternal and with forever. And here's the fifth sign. I'm sorry, the, third, or the fourth sign of spiritual sleepiness. You might could say this about it. It's just like a spiritual laziness. Just a spiritual laziness where everything spiritual can just be put off till later. We can read our Bible. We can start that next week. We can start praying next week. We can actually get about the hard work of repentance. We can get after that next week. Like we know God would kind of want some movement in this area of our life, but we can do that next month. We can always put those things off. There's just this spiritual, you know, lethargy. You know, lethargy. It's just that sort of spiritual laziness where nothing's urgent. Everything can be done later on. Can I just tell you, that is like a, that is like a cancer in our souls when we feel that way about spiritual things. See, part of what the second coming of Jesus, we know he's coming back, we don't know when. Part of what that is intended to produce is a spiritual awakeness, not laziness, but an alertness, like an urgency to all of those sort of things. Man, I want to encourage you. There is no day like today to start reading your Bible. There is no day like today to start praying to God, getting to know God. There is no day like today to repent of those things in your heart that you know need to be repented of. There is no day like today to take the step toward good biblical community in your life. There's no day like today for that. See, one of the signs of spiritual sleepiness is just this laziness. Spiritual laziness just is like a fog that settles over our lives. And here's the fifth sign of spiritual sleepiness. Is we start to live like we're owners, not like we're stewards. So it's interesting, in Matthew 25, to end this whole section, this is a parallel account in Matthew 24 and 25, to end this section, Jesus talks about the parable of the talents. And the parable of the talents, the main idea, the big idea of the parable of the talents is what really the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is trying to convince us of. That God is the owner of everything. Amen? God owns it all. So you're, 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 the house that you have, 
The possessions that you have, the money that you have, your bank account, your family, your kids, your job, your brain, your talents and your gifts, God owns all of those things. So God's the owner and God entrusts those, to, those things to us so that now we're stewards. And the big idea of the parable is that as stewards, we are intended and, and commanded by God to take all of these things that he has entrusted to us and leverage all of those things for his causes and his concerns in the world, for his kingdom agenda. Because that, that when, we're, when we're spiritually awake, that's how we're seeing everything. God's owner, we're stewards. So now everything in our life is meant to be leveraged toward kingdom causes. But when we become spiritually sleepy, here's what we start to believe. My money's my money. This house is my house. My time is my time. My, my, how I do my job, it's, it's my job. My, my life is my life. And none of those things are true. None of them are. All of those things are on loan to you. And as a steward, when we're wide awake, we are leveraging all of those things for the things that Jesus cares about. All of those things are invested in the places that Jesus cares about. So just ask yourself the question, in your life right now, are you living more like an owner or more like a steward? Owner is spiritual sleepiness. A steward is spiritual awakeness. Now I want to end with this question and we're done. I want to end with the question of, by God's grace, how can we stay awake? How, like, what is God wanting us to do to stay awake? Now, let me just take one step back and clarify this. Staying awake requires great grace from God toward us, doesn't it? It makes us needy and dependent people. If you want to be a person who is living spiritually awake, it is going to lean you right into the work of the Spirit in your life and your need for God's grace to absolutely saturate every moment of your every day. So we are, we are needy people when it comes to, to living awake, to, to staying awake, being on guard. Now, in the middle of our need, though, there are things that I think we can do to help us stay awake. Maybe I, you could think about them like this. They are th- they're things that you can do to keep you in the pathway and kind of in the way of God's grace that keeps people awake. So I want to talk about that. What, what are the, as we're dependent upon God, what are some of the things that we can do? Kind of this idea of dependent discipline. We, we know we need grace. What are some of the ways that we can keep ourselves in the way of God's grace? And I want to suggest two of these things to you as we wrap up. Two things that we can do to kind of keep ourselves in the way of God's grace that keeps us awake. Here's number one. Is that we need to consistently consider the second coming of Jesus. That we need to think about that. You need to think about that. Not so you'll have like the whole chart and everything predicted. If you see this sign, then you'll know that sign. Then you'll know it's coming. Not for that reason. But you need to consistently think about, we know Jesus is coming back. We don't know when. So I need to live ready. You need to live ready in light of that. You need to consistently think about these things. I love how Paul um, talks about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, the church there was experiencing people who were dying. And that's a sobering moment for any of us to, to witness that and to be around that. And Paul is encouraging these people who are seeing their friends die. And do you know how he encourages them? By reminding them of the second coming. That there will be a day when Jesus comes back and undoes death. That day's coming. 
And then in verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4, he looks at the church and says this. Now, here's what I want you to do. You see what I've just done encouraging you with the second coming? I want you to do the same thing with one another. I want you to be a community of people who are not just reminding yourself of the second coming, but you're reminding one another that there will be a day when Jesus comes back. That day is coming for us. And you know what's so ironic about the early church is they actually did that. The early church did a wonderful job of helping one another stay awake to these things. And it so often came out in this phrase, Maranatha. It was the cry of the early church. It was, it's the cry of every Christian, by the way. But you see this come out so vividly in the early church. Maranatha is this Aramaic word, and, and it would be translated like this. Jesus, come quickly. I mean, Jesus, come back for your bride. We're ready. Maranatha. It was the cry of the early church. And it's interesting. The early church was a Greek-speaking church. That's the language of the early church. But this word was Aramaic. And this is one of the few words that the early church kept in Aramaic. They didn't translate it into Greek into a similar word. They kept that old Aramaic word. And you know why I think they kept it? I think they kept it because everyone had recognized that word. It was so familiar. It was so on the lips of Christians that they're like, we don't need to translate it. Everyone knows it. We don't need to put that in Greek where our people will get it over here. Everyone knows it because everybody's been saying it. So every time they would worship, it would end with Maranatha, Jesus, come back. Every time they'd take communion, they would end with Maranatha, Jesus, please come back. Every time they would, they would face persecution and suffering, it would be Maranatha, Jesus, come back. It was constantly on their lips. And you know how ironic it is that the last page of the Bible, how the Bible, how the New Testament ends, is with that encouragement. Listen to the last chapter of the Bible, the last few verses. It says, Revelation 22, verse 20. Be on the screen for you. These are the last words of Jesus. He who testifies to these things says, last words of Jesus is this, surely I am coming. So just know that, church, know, surely I'm coming. You don't know when, but you know this for sure. I am coming back. And here's the last words of the church in response to Jesus. Come Lord Jesus, quickly. Come, come on, Jesus, come back. It's our old word, Maranatha. It is what Genesis through Revelation, it is what the entire Bible is leading up to, and it's what the entire Bible wants to put on the Christian heart, is this cry of, Jesus, come back for us, we're ready. I mean, I just, I am praying that God would make us a church family who would constantly be reminding one another of that word, Maranatha. That we would be a people constantly stoking that hope for a new heavens and a new earth and life with God forever, Maranatha. We need to consider the second coming of Christ. And lastly, we need to consider the cross of Christ. We need to consider the cross. There is nothing like the cross of Christ that will keep our affections stoked for Jesus. There is nothing like the cross of Christ who will keep the deep desires of our hearts flowing toward God. There's nothing like the cross that will do that. That the cross stands in a category by itself and its ability to wake up sleepy hearts. So we need to be people who are considering the good news of the gospel seen on the cross of Christ. That God in his grace and kindness toward us would send his beloved son to live the life that we could not live. Perfectly fulfilling the commands of God. 
in our place and, and that God would send his beloved son Jesus to a cross where he would bear the, God's wrath for our sin. He would bear all of that in our place for us. He would stand in our place on the cross where God's wrath absolutely crushed him so it doesn't have to crush us and that we can celebrate in the good news of Jesus that Jesus resurrected on the third day showing God's power over Satan's sin and death. Here's what the gospel is. If you want a picture for it, the good news of Jesus, the cross of Christ, it is like cold water on the sleepy hearts. It wakes us up to the good news of Jesus. It makes us spiritually alert. So I'm praying that that we wouldn't just be a people considering the second coming of Jesus, but that we would be a church family consistently reminding one another of just how good the good news is. Amen? Just, Just how gracious God has been with us. Just how kind God has treated us. And my prayer is that that would bring us to life that it would wipe away the fog of spiritual apathy and and sleepiness, and it would stab our hearts to being fully awake. Let's pray together. You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com.